I, wow, you know, we're done with Acts. What's, what's, there's nothing to talk about anymore, right? No, no of course there is. I, we finished Acts, and that was quite the journey. And uh, we're not quite ready for uh, where we're going yet. Probably something in the prophets. Um, but, um, but speaking of the prophets, I thought today I would talk about uh, Micah because I just finished teaching a teaching not only an MSI uh, class of that you know with an extra week, seven weeks altogether, uh, and on Tuesday nights and on Wednesday mornings. Uh, I thought, let's just make it across the board, right? Uh, now, uh, I was I was laughing to myself uh, earlier this week. You know, Micah, for most of us, when we think of the book of Micah, you're, you're thinking about probably two, two, perhaps three things. One is uh, the prophecy in chapter 5 of the birth of the Messiah in, in Bethlehem. Clearly, it's there, right? Uh, number two is the great passage, what does God require but to do justice, love, uh, love, I said, love mercy, and walk circumspectly or carefully before God, or humbly before God, right? And then if you're really astute and you are uh, in our movement uh, and you celebrate the Jewish holidays, uh, you know that we, we read the last three verses of the book every year on Rosh Hashanah, uh, when we go down to Creekside, right, about casting uh, all of our, God will take all of our sins and cast them into the sea. That comes from the book of Micah. Uh, but in the big scheme of things, Micah is a very, very important book. And what I'm going to do is talk about three little different things about the book of Micah. And I thought, you know, this could be a 15-parter right away. You know, but I won't do that. All right. I mean, I can think of three messages just on chapters five, verses one through four. Okay. But again, I will refrain. Okay. Maybe we'll teach another MSI class on it one of these days. So some things about the book of Micah and what we want to understand. Micah consists of three sections. There's three cycles in the book of Micah. Okay. Of you know, a judgment and hope, judgment and hope, judgment and hope. But the way they're written, it's kind of like judgment and hope, judgment and hope, and judgment and hope. <laughs> okay, uh, and it, it really ends on quite a quite a, 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 a climactic uh, set of verses. Okay. Uh, and uh, the, the good thing about uh, Micah is the way it's written is we know where the three sections begin because each one of them begins with the word here, right? Like Shema, right? Here. You see it in chapter 1 and verse 2, and then in chapter 3 and verse 1, and then chapter 6 and verse 1. And, and it just works out really well. Uh, the other thing, uh, just in, uh, by way of introduction about Micah, is like all the prophets, we want to understand that when the, when this was written down, it was really written for not only the people in their day, but for every subsequent generation, right? Uh, and that's very important because when we read uh, uh, the book of Micah, we can respond and react to it, and we're supposed to. You know, it's not really, the, the way you're supposed to read the prophets is not simply, well, how interesting that God spoke to him, uh, you know, around 750 uh, B.C.E. And, uh, you know, 
He spoke to the um, the Jewish people in the northern part of the country, uh, in Israel and in Judah, and then you have the Assyrians and the you know and the Babylonians. And what year was it? And now that's all good to know because it helps us to understand the book. But the prophets do speak to us uh, in our day. They're not just simply narrative histories of, of something that took place, but they're very vibrant, alive, living words, uh, you know, for us. So I thought, well, how do I communicate this and just, you know, one fell uh, swoop go through the book of Micah? So what I thought we would look at the three faces of Micah. How's that? Uh, the three faces of Micah. There are three, three ways of reading this book. Okay. Because in a way we can relate to it from three different points of view. And of course, this is true probably about all the prophets, but we're talking about Micah. So we're calling it the, you know, the three faces of Micah. The first is we can relate to this book as Micah, as the prophet, you know, and we could say as the remnant of Israel, the godly remnant, right? And have that perspective. From that perspective, we relate to the sadness of Micah, the, the, the lamenting of Micah, of, of Micah looking at uh, the world around him and seeing the, the darkness uh, and lamenting over the state of affairs because he can see what the people don't see. He can see judgment coming even though people are having a fine time and having a fine time and view themselves as entitled and, and uh, you know, nothing can happen to us because we're Israel. Uh, he sees through all of that. He has the viewpoint of God, you, you know, uh, and, uh, and therefore, as, as Heschel would say, the pathos of God, you, you know, the grief of, uh, of God in seeing the rebellion of his people and what it, and what's going to happen. Much like the grief of a parent watching their child make wrong choice after wrong choice and recognizing there's nothing I can do, uh, you know, except watch this train wreck. Uh, and hope there's life at the other end of it, you know? Uh, and uh, that is the lamentation of Micah. If you, um, you know, right from the get-go, it's going to be problematic. Uh, in chapter 1 and verse 2, when he says, Hear, O peoples, all of you, this is like the whole earth, like, listen, whole earth, of the indictment upon Israel. And then it's like, and recognize it's you too, you know? I mean, if it's the covenant people, what is it going to mean to everybody else? Right? So, uh, you know, he says, Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, and all it contains. Let the Lord God be a witness against you. His holy temple. Oh, man, this is just like, it's coming, you know? Uh, and in verse 8, he says, Because of this, I must lament and wail. Right? So in chapter 1, he's basically you know, talking about the fact that, they're, that, that, that Jerusalem is acting just like Samaria. That the southern kingdom where the Davidic kingship was, was acting just like the illegitimate kingship in Samaria, in the northern kingdom. And it's like, shame on you, right? Uh, and he says, because of this, I must lament and wail in verse 8. I must go barefoot and naked. I must make a lament like the jackals. And the morning like the ostriches, right? And, uh, and how it's like farfallen, as we would say in Yiddish. It's like a lost cause. It's, this world, it's, it's, it's like a lost cause, right? 
Uh, and um, uh, we see in chapter 2 that he gets a little more specific. And, uh, you know, he says, Woe to those who scheme iniquity to work out evil in their beds. When morning comes, they do it. For it is the power of their hands. They covet fields and then seize them and houses and take them away. They rob a man of his house, a man of his inheritance. In other words, you have people being taken advantage of, people being cheated, vulnerable people being uh, oppressed. Right? Uh, in chapter 3, he talks about uh, the unethical leaders. He talks about, uh, it's interesting that, uh, in fact, in our class, someone, I think, raised this question. It was really very interesting. He doesn't say kings. He never says, uh, you know, you kings are all messed up. He, doesn't, he, he uses like terms like rulers, right? Uh, so in chapter 3, he says, Here now, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? In other words, you who are rulers, and I would suggest he uses the word rulers because it's inclusive of the kings. But it's not just, oh, it's all the king's fault. But every ruler, every magistrate uh, that there is, it has abdicated uh, their responsibilities and roles. And uh, that speaks of the kings, all the, 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 the judges, the magistrates. Uh, and then he'll go on and talk about the prophets and the priests as well. Right? If you, if you read, if you go on and, and, and you read it, especially toward the end of the chapter, uh, in verse, I think it's, um, well, 10 and 11, speaking of these rulers who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Meaning it looks great. By the way, that means what a great city, but you've built it on the backs of these people. You've built it on injustice. You've built it on immorality. You've built it on unethical behavior. Hey, it looks great. Great policies, you know, but, you know, but you are unethical and you are immoral, uh, in it. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priests instruct for a price. Her prophets divine for money. Bribes, price, money, all bad, right? But they say calamity will not come upon us, right? Calamity will not come upon us because we're Israel. In fact, we're Jerusalem. We have the temple and everything. You, you know? So God loves us. Uh, it cannot happen. So he's lamenting, uh, you know, all of this. He is uh, lamenting all of this. Okay, just uh, to, to keep moving forward, uh, uh, we could say that, well, I'm just going to move forward. Okay. <laughs> if you go all the way to the end in chapter 7, in chapter 7, in the first six verses, this is where everything that he said, all of the grievous accusations that he's made, all are like on the prophet's shoulders here. Uh, and verses 1 to 6 of chapter 7 is this lamentation. But he said, Woe is me, for I am like the fruit pickers and the grape gatherers there is not a cluster of grapes to eat or a, or a first uh, ripe fig, which I crave. You know, and of course, that goes back to a passage in Isaiah in the fifth chapter uh, where you read that God has this vineyard and he planted this vineyard, which is Israel, and he expected fruit. He expected, you know, a, a wonderful crop. And how disappointing it is 
to see how it has turned out. The godly person has perished from the land. There is no upright person uh, among men. Uh, all of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. Everyone's out for themselves. Everyone is all about me, right? All about what's good for me, and I don't care about you, right? Uh, concerning evil, both hands do it well. Again, you read about the prince asks also the judge for a bribe. A great man speaks uh, of the desire of his soul, so they weave it together. Uh, the best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. It's all bad. Do not, in verse 5, do not trust the neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. And then in verse 6, for son treats father contemptuously, daughter rises up against her mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, a man's enemies are the men of his own household. That should sound vaguely familiar to us because Yeshua quotes that verse in Matthew chapter 10, describing himself as in this role of prophet, that Yeshua is a prophet and people are rejecting his message. And he is being marginalized. And he says, this is it's just like Micah. And so in our own day, when we read Micah, we need to read it first from the point of view of the prophet and of the, the remnant. Uh, lamenting on the world around us. Lamenting on the sorry state of, of affairs. When we look at the world, we can see darkness even though most people do not see it. We grieve, or should be, grieving over the state of affairs of morals and ethics and the lack of godly leadership everywhere, right? So this is important because sometimes people approach us, or we might even ask ourselves this question, and, and looking for, well, I'm trying to understand where God is in all of this. Where? How come I don't see God? How come... Uh, you, you know, we don't see, uh, why is there, why is there darkness? And, you know, we can even apply it, even looking, if we want to look at it, even in our own, uh, uh, our own community, uh, or our own lives, lamenting over the sadness of our own lives. We may have, we may have a lot of things going on and we may say, where is God? I don't know where God is. Well, when you read the book of Micah, you recognize that the problem is the rebellion of the world, the rebellion. And, and part of it is simply acknowledging this is the problem. Not, let me think, let me try to make an excuse for God. You know, let, let me make an excuse and say, well, God's at work. I don't know what he's doing, but, but I, I don't know. No, this is the problem. It's like, and say, yes. See, Micah isn't saying, Oh, no, not woe is, um, not woe is me because God, God is absent. He's gone and, and I don't know where he is and, and he really is not a just God and, and, and I've been sold a bill of goods and, and how can you say Yeshua is the Messiah? Look at the world. Well, you know what the answer is? Well, Yeshua is the Messiah because of the world, the way you look at it. That he is indeed the Messiah. Uh, and, and acknowledging the world for what it is. That's what a prophet does. Right? And, and, uh, um, and when you, when you really read, when you, I, I would suggest reading Micah 7, 1 to 6, like when you go home slowly, like, you know, slowly, because you get a sense of like loneliness 
like loneliness and like nobody understands and uh, don't they see it, right? And so remember, he's speaking to the covenant people, right? So uh, primarily, he's speaking to uh, Israel, to primarily to Judah, to Jerusalem, okay? Uh, but to Israel and, uh, and, and to the world. And so when we lament, you know, I, the, the primary lamentation is not so much about what's going on out there, but the primary lamentation is about what's going on in here. That the state of affairs of the, of the believers in Yeshua. And, you know, uh, how are we living? What is our, uh, you know, what is our testimony? How are, you know, so, like the prophet and like the remnant who really believe, we need to look at, we, we could say, uh, we need to look at the, uh, the rest of the Jewish community and lament of, of the, uh, you know, of, of not, of the marginalization of Yeshua, uh, and, and lament over that, uh, and, uh, lament that, that, uh, you know, um, uh, and I'm not talking about Beth Messiah necessarily, but just, the larger body of Messiah. What kind of testimony do we have? That's something to lament over, right? And the state of the, and the state of the world. So when you think about it, it's like, wow, there's a lot of darkness everywhere. Well, welcome to uh, you know the life of uh, of the prophet of of the prophet uh, uh, Micah, right? And and so that's one way of looking at a Micah. Sort of, you know, recognizing the world around us, the, you know, and, and, uh, um, acknowledging it for what it is. I think I, I, you know, again, I could speak on that for hours, right? Of course I can. I'm holding myself back, right? I, b- because we have this tendency of we, we take the bait all the time of feeling like the world is all messed up and we have to give a, we have to give like some kind of excuse for God rather than saying, yes! It is messed up. You know, when, when you have major tragedies like, you know, 9-11 or, you know, Sandy Hook or uh, things, you know, much more recent in our, own, in our own day, in our own time, and even what we're living through, what we've been living through the last few years, yes, it's all bad. I mean, you know, you hate to be like that, but that is true. And that is, you have to acknowledge that. And that is what the prophet is indeed the saying. Okay. So there's another way to read the book of Micah. And that is through the people who he's talking to. The people who need to repent, right? Uh, as the objects of the prophet's message. Okay. So uh, he is speaking to the covenant people who have blown it. So it's one thing to lament over it. Then it's another thing to self-acknowledge it, right? Uh, the first audience uh, is, again, Israel. Uh, and I say Israel the way he's kind of using Israel interchangeably between the, you know, Jerusalem and Samaria. Uh, and the society, uh, the society at large. There's plenty of verses in here where he acknowledges clearly the sinfulness of the nations and the judgment of the nations. Uh, and the judgment of the nations uh, to come. Uh, you know, in chapter six of Micah, very interesting. I, I I know we love verse eight. It's like we we're, we're fixated on verse eight, but uh, verses uh, one one to five and nine to sixteen uh, are absolutely uh, uh, crucial. 
What's happening here is that the prophet speaks using the metaphor, using a picture of like a courtroom scene, okay? And he's the voice of all the, all the participants. It's like, thus saith the Lord, and then he speaks uh, uh, for Israel on their response, and, and then he speaks for himself uh, in it. Uh, and, uh, and so we need to be the receivers of the message and say, wow, I need to be, I need to get serious. I need to repent. We need to repent. We, I, my family, Beth Messiah, Columbus, Ohio, the Jewish community, the world, right? I need to, uh, need, need, need to repent. So the first, um, uh, in the beginning of chapter six, after he makes, uses this word reeve, which means like argument or, uh, lawsuit, you know, uh, it's interesting. The mountains are the witnesses. They've been around forever, right? Uh, and God is the prosecutor, okay? It's amazing because in chapter 7, he becomes the defense attorney. But in chapter 6, he is the prosecutor. And the opening statement is in verse uh, 3 of chapter 6. My people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me! Now, when you read that, it's not, my people, what have I done to you, and how have I wearied you? Answer me. He's, he is lamenting, he is begging, he is crying. What have I done to you? Answer me. That's what he's saying. Okay? And then, without reading it, we don't have time for it. In verse uh, 4, 5, uh, six, four, four and five, four and five. He mentions four different things that he's done. And what he does is he uses four universal, uh, beliefs of Israel that, you know, that, that Israel can turn, that, that no matter if you're from Jerusalem, you're Samaria, you're from Babylon, you're from New York, uh, you're from Tel Aviv, uh, you're from Poland, you're from South America, all Jewish people have a, uh, have a uh, history, a communal history. There's lots of things that believing, believing all kinds of things, but like having a Seder, for example, all Jews around the world, no matter what they believe, have a Seder. So this thing about coming out of Egypt, every Jewish person whether they believe it or they don't believe it or whatever it is, no, it has this knowledge of it, right? So he talks about four things. He says, I brought you out of Egypt. I gave you leadership. I, I gave you uh, two brothers and a sister. It's kind of interesting that they're all mentioned here. Uh, you know, uh, Moses, uh, um, Aaron, and Miriam. I gave you leaders. I, 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 uh, I made a, a pagan prophet uh, speak uh, words of blessing. And I brought you over the, uh, I brought you over the uh, Jordan into the land. Okay. From Shittim uh, to Gilgal. Right. I've done those things for you. And, 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 and this is what I, and this is what I end up with. Right. And then, uh, at the, um, uh, in the beginning in verse nine and going to the end of the chapter, there you have specific accusations accusation after accusation, and we need to read them uh, for what they are. You know, in verse 11, can I justify wicked scales and a bag of deceptive weights? Uh, again, for the rich men of the city are full of violence, her residents speak lies, their tongue is deceitful in their mouths. 
uh, you know, and, and, and so on. So Micah focuses tremendously on unethical injustices. Uh, and amazingly, this is why the people are going to go into captivity. This is why the people are going to go into uh, 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 captivity. Uh, what is going to happen? Uh, he, uh, he says at the end of uh, chapter 6, right? He says, The statutes of Omri and the works of the house of Ahab are observed. In their counsels or devices you walk. Therefore, I will give you up for destruction and your inhabitants for derision, and you will bear the reproach of my people. Okay? Uh, very interesting. So he's saying Omri and Ahab, they were kings of the north of uh, Samaria. Right? He says, you're just like them, and you're walking in the counsel of the wicked. Well, you know from Psalm 1 what happens to the counsel, to those who walk in the counsel of the wicked. Right? And what do you have here? I will give you up for, he's talking about Jerusalem. I will give you up for destruction, uh, your inhabitants for derision, and you will bear the reproach of my people. I'm going to destroy the city, and, and you will all be ashamed. You will all, the city itself and its institutions and everything in it will be shamed. That's what he says here, right? And so we need to read this book as a people and say, wow, we need to repent. This needs to drive us back to God, right? They were living as entitled uh, as entitled people. Uh, they were living, uh, uh, looking at everyone else as ungodly and looking at everyone else as, uh, you know, uh, as uh, as sinful, Right? And of course, you know, we read uh, in uh, the Brit Hadashah, judgment begins where? Right? With the house uh, of God. Having this word, we should run to rep and, and repent, you know? Uh, and not be thinking, well, you know, there's absolutely, I can't think of anything to pray about. <laughs> right? How many prayer meetings? I can't think of anything to pray about. Right? There's plenty to be praying about, plenty to be repenting of. You know, uh, on, uh, on, even on behalf of, of our people. In fact, in the uh, seventh chapter, notice what he says in verse nine. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. That Micah and the remnant take upon, like, like, uh, Ezra. If you remember, Ezra does this also. That, that, that confesses the sins of the people. Not just you better confess, but we as part of Humanity, you know, uh, or, you know, uh, good citizens, uh, or as Messiah followers, we need to repent. Even if, you know, a few are guilty, all are responsible, right? You know, uh, there, uh, there, there you go. And so very important that we receive the message. And, you know, it is really, um, it's very sobering because if you go back to chapter 3, uh, when he's just laying it on the leaders, laying it on the leaders, at the end, in verse 12, he says, Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins, and the mountains of the temple will become high places of a forest. In other words, no one's immune. You know, that, that should give us ample reason to always be praying for leaders. You know, uh, because everyone, everyone suffers the consequences. Everyone suffers the consequences. 
Very important to understand that, um, you know, I will just say this. I don't usually like to always run to uh, the Holocaust because there's a lot in between here and there, right? Uh, but it's very interesting. If you read Rachmiel Friedland's book, uh, um, what's the name of the book? When Being Jewish Was a Crime. When Being Jewish Was a Crime. He talks about Jewish believers who died in the Holocaust. It's not like, I'm a believer, nothing bad can happen to me. I'm, I'm, a, uh, I'm a Messiah follower, so I live in this little tiny cocoon, and I'll be okay. It's everybody else we got to worry about. We need to worry about everybody, including ourselves, <laughs> you know? Uh, because in this world of darkness, yes, we may have an assured destiny. Yes, indeed, as we'll see. Uh, we may have an assured destiny, but in between now and then, all kinds of things can happen. All kinds of things can happen. What God promises is that he'll never leave us or forsake us. He promises that we have a destiny. He promises that he'll, he'll, that we can stay above the fray, that we don't have to sink into the quicksand. But he doesn't promise that the bad things can't happen. Unfortunately, unfortunately, many people hear that. And that's why people run away from God. They've been sold a bill of goods. How come my life's not working out? God, it must not be true. No, your life is not working out. And so believe it because it is true. And this is where the help comes from. My help comes from uh, the Lord, right? And this is what Micah uh, is indeed saying. So we need to receive that. Well, okay. Now the third, I, oh, um, oh, why not? I, just one other thing about receiving this message. He says something else that's very interesting. You know, one thing you always want to remember, they never stop being the covenant people. God never says, I'm done with you, right? I think it's kind of like, you know, Tevye and Fiddle on the Roof, choose somebody else for a while, right? Because it is it is really very interesting that he talks here about about cutting them off. And in chapter 5, he says, uh, it will be in that day, declares the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots. Oh, could give a whole message on that. I will also cut off the cities of your land and tear down your fort- all your fortifications. I will cut off sorceries from your hand and, uh, and you will have fortune tellers no more. I will cut off your carved images and your sacred pillars from among you so that you will no longer bow down. Okay, I will, just, I will cut off, I will cut off, I will cut off, I will cut off. Everything, every crutch that you have tried to rely on as a people, I'm going to cut off. And then in the last verse, he's, he turns to the nations and says, and you too. That's in the last verse of the chapter. But the, the, the primary message is to Israel. You know, it's like he's going to take the, you know, I have a friend who was a welder um, uh, by trade, but an artist by whatever. <laughs> and uh, uh, back in the day when I was in Los Angeles, he uh, lived in a, um, he had like a, uh, oh, uh, um, a big a big building, like a, a warehouse, thank you. A warehouse, right? Uh, uh, and, uh, and he and his wife lived like above, like in a loft. And uh, he was a sculptor. So he was a welder by, he had to make a living, so, you know, he was a construction worker, he was a welder. 
but he would take metal and do things with metal that was unbelievable. And they were like huge, like 10 feet tall, giant sculptures, right? Uh, and, uh, and I used to say to him, are you sure you're Jewish? I mean, a Jewish guy with a torch like that is kind of dangerous business. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, wonderful, uh, wonderful uh, brother. I still keep in touch with him. Uh, and, uh, but, but my point is that he would use this blowtorch, right? And that's kind of like what God does. It's like, I'm going to use this blowtorch on you. You know, uh, like uh, like a surgeon might do in a little way to uh, cauterize, you know, uh, an area of skin, like burning a little piece of, of skin to make sure that there's no infection and that, and that bad uh, bacteria and germs don't spread, right? And that is what God says he's going to do to Israel. And may I suggest that is what he could very well say to us, that I need to pure, you know, we sing a song, Right? Purify my heart, right? Purify my heart, right? Yeah, right? And we're singing it like, it's kind of scary, okay? It's kind of scary. When God purifies us, it is not always a pretty picture, but it's always for the betterment of us and the betterment of the, uh, you know, of the, of the good news, all right? Okay, didn't want to leave that out. Okay, and so now the third, the third way, of course, that to read Micah is to read it as the people who have been oppressed and the people who have been hurt and the people who are, who, whom God promises deliverance, right? Uh, how important, of course, uh, is, is that? You read, for example, in uh, chapter uh, 2, uh, in, you know, at the end of the first cycle, after the judgment, he says in verse 12 and 13, I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. The breaker goes up before them. They break out, pass through the gate and go by it. So their king goes on before them and the Lord is at their head. In other words, I'm going to bring you back. You'll be my, my sheep. Uh, a picture that God often uses, you, you know. Uh, and then, of course, uh, in chapter 4, uh, when you read chapter 4, you say, wait a minute, isn't this Isaiah? Did Micah get this from Isaiah? Why do you assume Micah got it from Isaiah? It could have been the other way around. We judge these books by their size, Right? Micah was very influential, uh, but what many people believe is that they actually both had the same source, uh, frankly. You know, you read in chapter 4, it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, it will be raised above the hills, and so on and so forth, right? In chapter, in verse 3 of chapter 4, he will judge between many peoples, render decisions for mighty distant nations. Okay. By the way, I'm going to pause here and say that is the definition of ju- of when it, when it says uh, do justice, like in chapter six, as we'll see in just a second. What is justice? It is rendering decisions, right? Uh, you know, everything we do is a decision we make, right? Uh, and the only difference, really, between ju- justice and righteousness. Uh, or do justice and righteousness is justice is the decision to do the ethical, proper, good and right and godly thing. Righteousness is doing it. But we usually, in the Bible, they're, they're, they're usually uh, synonyms. 
uh, uh, frankly. But we see that God will come and do this. Yeshua will come and he will bring relief. He will bring uh, vind- uh, vindication, right? I'm not going to turn to all the different all the different verses, but I uh, but it is interesting I uh, when you come to chapter seven, we'll just go right to whew, right to the end of chapter seven. It's okay. Howard, it's it's okay. All right, thank you. All right. So I uh, when you read the book of Micah, I uh, the book could actually end at the end of verse 17 of chapter seven. You have here how uh, you know, uh, the shepherd is going to come, and he's going to come with his scepter. The king shepherd will come. The Messiah will rule. Uh, uh, if you go higher up in uh, in chapter in chapter seven, beginning in um, well, actually, you know, uh, after that great lamentation that we talked about, the very next verse in verse seven says, "But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me." Right? Waiting and watching expectantly, right? Uh, that God is alive and well, and if things are really bad, but I am going to keep my eyes on him, right? Uh, and then you'll notice in verse 8, when, he sa- when it says, Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. Those are opposites. You know, and they depict this reversal, uh, you know, uh, what's the word? What's the phrase? I can't think of it now. Okay. There'll be a reversal of the way things, uh, of the way things are. Uh, in other words, uh, what had been fallen and what had been shamed will no longer, will, will rise, uh, and will be honored. And uh, those who were doing the shaming then will be, will be the shamed ones. Uh, and uh, and Jerusalem will will flourish and and he says all of that and then at the when you go to the end of verse seventeen you see that the nations will be judged Israel will be blessed um, uh, and uh, uh, and it could just end there but then you have verses eighteen nineteen and twenty and it's like they're an epilogue okay what is verses eighteen nineteen and twenty who is a god like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possessions. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Uh, you will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you did swear to our forefathers from days of old. This is how the book of Micah ends. He's no longer talking about Jerusalem, rebuilding Jerusalem, uh, uh, judging uh, uh, the nations, uh, or any of those things. It's all about restored relationship. All about restored relationship. It's very interesting. Uh, who is a God like you? Does that ring a bell? Of course, that's, that's a play on Micah's name, by the way. But in... Exodus chapter 15, after the exodus out of Egypt and the parting of the waters, Israel sings that, right? May I suggest that it is no coincidence uh, that uh, uh, he says this at the end, that there's, you know, there's going to be another exodus, right? 
And uh, he even says that if you go farther up. He talk, here, in verse uh, 15, he says, For as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show you miracles. <laughs> okay? And then, is it a coincidence, a few verses down, who is, who is a God like you? Right? I don't think it's a, he, I think Micah is pointing to that. And then you have all of these phrases that describe forgiveness. Look at them. Pardons iniquity, passes over the, the rebellious acts, uh, doesn't retain his anger forever, uh, uh, has compassion, will tread our iniquities under, under, throw our sins into the sea. It's like he says it so many different ways. He wants us to get it that as bad as it is, there's going to be vindication and there's going to be deliverance and there's going to be restoration. And we need to get that. He even says here that he will not keep his anger forever. He does not retain his anger forever. So it's very interesting. No matter how angry he is, his love, the anger will go away, but the love will last forever. Okay? Uh, and uh, an unchanging love, of course, is chesed, loyal, steadfast love. Right? Uh, and so he uses, he uses the word chesed. He uses the word rachamim, which is compassion. And he uses the word emet, which is truth. Lo and behold, aren't those the same qualities that Moses sees back in Exodus chapter 34 when God forgives the sin of the golden calf? Wow. And so this is the hope of Israel. This is the hope of the people who are being oppressed, that there really is a living hope, a hope for the future that affects us today like we read in First Peter, right? Uh, and we have indeed this hope. And may I suggest that we have this hope not just as a people and not just at the end, at the consummation, but in our own lives, no matter what is happening to us, no matter what, uh, consequences of sins of ourselves or others or just living in this world, things we may be experiencing, there is always light. There is always hope. God will never, ever give up on us, and he will travel with us every step of every way. We can always keep moving forward. That's what Micah is telling the people. And so finally, what brings, what ties all three of these messages together? What ties together the message of Micah being Micah, being the, uh, you know, being the sinful people that need to repent and being then the, the, uh, the, the people who are in need of deliverance? What ties it all together? Chapter six in verses six, seven, and eight. In verses six and seven, very quickly, very quickly. Verses 6 and 7 of chapter 6. So you have this lawsuit. This is like a courtroom scene, right? Uh, and God says, what have I done to you? Will you answer me? Okay, here's the answer. Here is Israel's answer. Now remember, Mike is putting this in the mouth of the people. It's, it's actually a judgment on them. But this is the answer of the people. What shall we come to the Lord with and, uh, and bow myself before God most high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? This is their response. How feeble can it be? In other words, their response in verse 6 is, well, I should, I should bring an offering, and then we're okay. 
As long as I bring an offering, we're going to be okay. Right? As long as I show up to services, I'll be okay. As long as I start giving regularly, then I'll be okay. If I read through my Bible in a year, then I'll be okay. That's what we think. To God, it's like, what are you, giving me a tip? A tip for service? Like, I'm, you know, here's a, here's a little something for you. You think that's, you think that's what it takes? And then verse seven, the reason you have verse seven, remember, this is the words of the prophet in the mouths of the people. He's saying, how ridiculous you sound. Ten thousands of rams? Shall I sacrifice my firstborn? That's stupid, right? Even for them, right? And so Micah is saying, how feeble. And then the prophet says in verse 8, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly uh, with your God. And so here, the prophet actually says, he's not saying this is everything you've done, and this is what's going to happen to you. Uh, and this, uh, but you know, there's a glorious future. This is what He wants from you. When you hear these indictments, yes, God wants a sacrifice. He wants you to come to Him in the way that He has prescribed. But what He wants is your heart. That's what He wants, not some tip, not some religious activity. If we were in a Catholic church, I would say not five Hail Marys. Don't say the Shema three times a day. It's not the Shema. You know, it's not that. I said the Amidah, morning, noon, and night. I'm okay with God. No. Are those bad things? Of course not. But it's not what he desires. So quickly, the word require is not a good translation. It's not like, what does God demand? That's not what he means. It's not what it means. That's not even what the word means. It means, what does God seek? That's what it means. What does God look for? What does God desire? And it's very similar. I, don't, I know I'm, I'm not even going to look at my watch. But I know, uh, but if you on your own time look in Deuteronomy chapter 10, in verse 12, you'll see a similar statement. And there it says, what does God ask? Sometimes, but unfortunately, your, your translations are probably going to still say require. But it's, but it's about asking. What does he desire? What does he beg us for? What does he want? What does he seek from us? He says, he has told you what is good. Okay? And what does the Lord seek from you? But to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly before your God. Basically, make ethical, moral decisions and carry them out. The word do, the phrase do justice is used about 15 times in the Bible. And every other time, almost every other time, it's do justice and righteousness. This is like shorthand. This is like written to be like a statement to be memorized. Or maybe to like put to music. Anyway. Okay? Uh, do justice. To make ethical and moral decisions and carry them out. And then to love it. Ahavat chesed. Love loving kindness. Love loyal love. Love serving from your heart. Love going beyond the call of duty. Loving it. Don't just do it. Love it. Love it. Because this is the outworking of love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind and strength, right? Love it, right? Uh, and then, of course, uh, it doesn't mean be humble. 
It doesn't mean have humility. No. It means be careful how you walk. Walk circumspectly before God because He is with you every moment of every day, all the time. There's no absence from Him. And so this is an act of worship. This is what God desires. Faith and faithfulness, you know that. Two sides of the same coin. And isn't it very interesting that if you look in chapter seven about the attributes that God says that the, you know, that will, will, uh, come to be at the end, the great, the great forgiveness, that it says here, he delights in chesed. He delights in loyal love. He tells us, what do I want from you? I want you to, to be like me in your moral attributes. I want you to love chesed just like he does. And, uh, and isn't it interesting at the, you know, in the, um, in the Gospel of Matthew, in the 23rd chapter, in the 23rd verse, you read these words. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. In other words, he's saying what Micah is saying right here, uses, using the very same words, justice, mercy, faithfulness, right? And he says, these are weightier. Not everything's equal. These are weightier things to do, but you shouldn't neglect the others, but these are weightier. And so may we receive this, uh, this message in, uh, you know, may we be able to look at the world the way it is and say and acknowledge it. Yes, this is the way it is. Uh, and may we uh, lament the uh, the state of, of things. Uh, and then may we be on the receiving end and say, I repent of it. May we take a deep, hard look. You know, if we want to affect the world in which we live, we need to take the log out of our own eye uh, and uh, and not just be pointing fingers that way, but also pointing fingers this way. Uh, and, and, and then repent and know, recognize that God receives that. And there can be, uh, you know, healing and empowerment. Uh, and then, regardless of how things are in our life, know that uh, God has not left you. He has not forsaken you. Whether we're talking about, in the big scheme of things, the consummation or in our own lives right now. And, you know, one of the greatest ant- antidotes of all of it is Living out the way God wants us to live is doing justice, loving mercy, and walking circumspectly or carefully before God. In that, indeed, there is healing, there is testimony, and there is light. Let's pray. Lord uh, God, thank you for the words of this prophet. God, and um, uh, may, uh, may you minister to our hearts in it. We pray in Yeshua's name.